All right, everybody, good morning. Hey, grab a Bible. Let's go to Luke chapter 2 this morning. We are glad that you are with us. If you are new to our community, welcome. Also, um, if you have not made an appearance at Christmas Boulevard, the word boulevard isn't really strong enough to handle what exactly goes on here. I, this is my first time through it, and uh, my, my son asked when he heard that there was um, uh, sledding. He said, well, is that off the roof? And... Um, <laughs> said, well, maybe next year, son, I think it's a little, little smaller than that. But in actuality, I mean, this is, this is an amazing event pulled off by so many of our volunteers and leaders, and uh, it's an excuse to be a blessing to the community, to break some stereotypes, uh, to remind folks that we're here, to subtly remind them about why we do this whole Christmas thing to begin with. And so it really is an appropriate thing if you want to invite some friends to tonight from four to nine. This morning, we're going to read some verses. We're going to do 15 or 20 minutes of history, and then we're going to read some verses. And uh, in the middle of the history, you'll be wondering, what's this have to do with anything? And then hopefully when we read the second set of verses, it will become clear. Luke chapter 2, we'll start in verse number 1. Let me get there. Luke 10. Nine, six, three. Verse one. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And in case you were wondering, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. In case you were wondering. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And if you remember, of course, last week, we read that sentence without hesitating. But as we saw, there's a bit more to that, a bit more of the scandal than what you'd appreciate just reading that. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available to them. And again, we speculated a bit as to why exactly that was. Now, Luke writes uh, a two-part gospel, right? He writes the book of Luke, and he writes the book of Acts. And both are written to the same patron, there was a, a man who uh, evidently had been learning about this, uh, this Jesus. And Luke, at the very beginning of Luke, says, Listen, I have undertaken to write an orderly and factual account so that you can trust the things that you've been hearing. And so Luke is very, very interested in attaching, particularly in the book of Acts, but in attaching the events of the life and ministry of Jesus and the early church into real people at real places and real times. And so whenever he gives us markers, like in those days, Caesar Augustus, there's a, there's a reason he mentions that. Now, last week we talked about the idea that as a Jewish audience, you would have heard Matthew's account of the Christmas story with a bit of skepticism and maybe from, from some Old Testament passage, a bit of you know, illegitimacy, illegitimacy, scandal, right? This kid could have been a potential mamzer. Uh, this week, we want to look at Luke's audience. Luke, was, uh, he was a Gentile. Uh, he, of course, uh, was sister to Leah, uh, born by Anakin. That's, a different, that's kind of a different story. And, um, and Luke, <laughs> and good morning. I mean, he just, 
to have to sit in the front row. You know? Hi, Ed. Um, it's awesome. I'm so sorry. It just, you just told, told right there. Now, Luke uh, wrote the book of uh, Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. He's very interested in um, uh, historical figures, but he's writing primarily to a non-Jewish audience. So there are times you can see where Luke's filling in stuff that his audience may not have known. So we want to ask the same question. How did Matthew, how did Matthew's Jewish audience hear that announcement? We want to ask, how did Luke's non-Jewish audience hear the birth story that's celebrated here? Now, we need to fire up the iPad and thus begins the 15 minutes of history. In Jesus' day, the only superpower uh, was the empire of Rome. Rome, over the course of centuries previous, had been gradually growing from a, a loose uh, association of tribes into taking over uh, the, the peninsula of Italy into really, by Jesus' time, and pushing forward the global superpower. These were the folks that controlled much of the known world, uh, the, the entire region around the Mediterranean Sea. Rome was firmly and solely in power at this time. Now, the ones who governed the Roman Empire, uh, before we get to groups of people named Caesars, was the Imperial Senate, and then the Senate uh, led with two councils. This was when Rome was a republic, and uh, the two councils uh, ruled for a year at, at a time, and they ruled kind of either in partnership or in competition with each other. There was one particular season where a guy named Julius Caesar... Uh, becomes consul, and what he does is he goes and he conquers as part of his extending his fame and glory. He consuls a region called Gaul. There's another consul named Pompey. Pompey goes and uh, and conquests and and um, subjugates a victory a, a victory a region called Palestine and Syria. These two become competitors. Julius Caesar defeats Pompey. And in essence, crowns himself emperor. Now, he doesn't do it as obviously as that, but he was so, he was starting to accumulate so much power that he was assassinated in 44 BC during the Ides of March. Now, before he died, he adopted his grandnephew Octavian as his adopted son. Now, one of the things that Octavian did after Julius was assassinated, Octavian decided to throw a big public festival of games in celebration of Julius. And during those games, sometime in June or July of the same year, 44 BC, there a comet appeared in the sky. And as you know, the ancients, of course, were very, very uh, superstitious about celestial phenomena. And so what, what uh, Caesar, Julius Caesar's allies did is they proclaimed that the comet was proof that Julius, after his death, had ascended to the right hand of the god Zeus and should have been accorded divine honor. So they started calling Julius Caesar the deified one. Now, if you're the son, even though you're adopted, if you're the son of the deified one, who are you? The son of the deified one, right? So he starts taking, the, he starts calling himself the son of the deified one. Now, civil war ensues, and in fact, about 10 years before all of this happened and 10 years after all of this happened, there was, Rome was tearing itself apart uh, in civil war. First it was Julius versus Pompey. Julius wins that one. After Julius is assassinated, it's his allies that take on his assassins. That goes on for several years. And then finally, it becomes Octavian versus 
Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, <laughs> Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, and the, in a very famous battle called the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. So Octavian's backed by Italy, Mark Antony is backed by Cleopatra in Egypt. There's this very famous war, uh, and, uh, and Octavian wins. It becomes, it becomes very, very significant. Because what happens after this is 20 years of civil war has ended. About 100 years total of civil unrest has ended. And what begins to happen is that the Roman Senate starts according Octavian certain honors. Foremost among them, Octavian changes his name to Caesar and he gets voted the title Augustus. The word Augustus means the illustrious one. Kind of the, the Roman of all Romans. And there's, there were political overtones to it. In fact, one of the ways you could translate Augustus was one who is divine. He's also voted the title Sebastus, which, which meant at the time, and I know you're all dying to know this, one who is to be worshipped. And the reason he was celebrated was because his gift to the world was peace. He had ended 20 years of civil war, so he had brought peace to the earth. In fact, we have a name for it, the Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome. Now, what began to happen as, Jul, as excuse me, as uh, Caesar Augustus reigned, was that the the um, the titles that would normally be given to somebody only after they died were given to him while he was still alive. So his own poet, his own poet Horace, noted in his epistles that what normally happened after their death, but upon you, Augustus, while still living among us, we already bestow divine honors. We set up altars to swear by in your name and confess that nobody like you will arise after this and no one has ever, like you, arisen before this. In other words, you're the best that it's ever going to be and you're the best that it's ever been. Now, relevance, 10 minutes. But what I want you to see is when Luke says, in the days of Caesar Augustus, that just wasn't some random person. This was somebody who was entitled certain things, and, and the boast was that he had brought certain things to the earth. In fact, the League of Asian Cities in 9 BC decided this. This was one of their pronouncements. Since the providence that is divinely ordered our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of mankind, bestowing him upon us and our descendants as a what? As a Savior. He who put an end to war and will order what? Peace. Caesar, who's by his epiphany exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied good tidings. And I put the Greek word up there because that's the same Greek word we use to get the word gospel or good news. So let me get this straight. He's a Savior who was prophesied about, who brought peace to the earth, and that was good news. That's interesting. Not only outdoing benefactors of the past, but also allowing no hope of greater benefactions in the future, right? This is as good as it gets, in other words. 
And since the birthday of the God first brought to the world the good tidings, again residing in him, for that reason, with good fortune and safety, the Greeks of Asia have decided that the new year and all the cities should begin on the 23rd of September, the birthday of Augustus. And they celebrated his birthday with a 12-day celebration called Advent. Isn't that interesting? This is an, an inscription from 6 B.C., on a government building, Turkey in Asia Minor, the most divine Caesar, who we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards disillusion, he restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the beginning of the new year. And then notice this next line. And who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior has put to an end war and has set all things in order. And then lastly, and whereas finally the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. Another inscription from Lycia, to, divine, to the divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, right? Because his father was the deified one, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. Other titles, he was called son of God, cosmic savior, the god Augustus, heaven's shining star, and, and, and one of his poets called him atonement for Rome's past sins. One of the things that you would say about Caesar was he was Lord, Kyrios. Caesar is Lord was one of the central most declarations. In fact, the priests of the empire were commanded to make offerings, burn incense and sacrifices to Caesar in Caesar's name and for Caesar's health and well-being. He was celebrated with a celebration called Advent. His epiphany or revealing was celebrated. Groups of citizens throughout the Roman Empire would meet and say prayers for Caesar and to Caesar in groups called ecclesias, or we know them as churches, and Caesar's return to a city would, call, would be called a parousia, which is the same word Paul later uses for the return of Jesus to the earth, interestingly enough. Another inscription, Imperator Caesar, son of God, Augustus, Savior, builder of the city. Now, if Caesar's gift, you, about, you got about five more minutes, if Caesar's gift was peace. How did he bring peace? What the point of a sword, right? I mean, the legions, there were 28 legions, each between five and 6,000 men. I mean, the reason Rome was so dominant was because they were militarily superior than any people in the world at that time. And so the way Roman peace came was at the point of a sword. In fact, just in Jesus' region, Pompey had conquered Palestine in the 60s, 63, 62 BC. About 10 years later, there was a revolt. And during that revolt, a Roman general named Cassius destroyed a city called Magdala. We know Mary Magdalene from there. And according to Josephus, a first century historian, enslaved 30,000 Jews at one time. When Jesus was born, we think maybe 4 BC or so, a Roman general named Varus put down another uprising by crucifying 2,000 Jews at once and destroying Sepphoris and the city of Emmaus. Remember, Jesus talks to two disciples on their way to Emmaus. These are, these are cities Jesus knew. These are stories Jesus knew. Jesus lived in the shadow of Sepphoris as it was being rebuilt. In fact, some people think that's why Joseph moved 
from Bethlehem to Nazareth was so that because he was a tecton, he worked in rebuilding Sepphoris, interestingly enough. So how did Roman peace come to the earth? It came at the point of a sword. In fact, Tacitus, one of their historians, quotes a general is saying their aim was to punish, to avenge, and to what? To terrify. Not just to win, but to terrify. The Roman general Germanicus laid waste to the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Places sacred and profane were raised indifferently to the ground. Only the destruction of the other race would end the war. Another historian, the Romans are plunderers of the world. If the enemy is rich, they are greedy and insatiable. If, they, if the enemy is poor, then they want their land. Not east nor west has sated them. They rob, they butcher, they plunder, they call it empire. And this is the key point. And where they make a desolation, they call it what? Peace. So when Jesus was born, who, who ruled the world? Rome. Who ruled Rome? Caesar Augustus. Who was Caesar Augustus? The son of the deified one who brought peace to the earth. He was called Lord. He was called Savior. He brought peace. And this was good news. Go to Luke chapter 2, verse 8. How would Luke's Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking, Roman-born readers have heard this? And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news. Same exact words Caesar used. Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for who? All the people. Was Roman good news, good news for everybody? No, but this news was good news for everybody. Today in the town of David, a what? Now, again, the exact same word used, and in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the only time it's used, only time it's mentioned. Right alongside of Lord, peace, gospel, and Savior. Isn't that interesting? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the... Lord, exact same word, kyrios. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appear with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, what? Peace to those upon whom His favor rests. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it's not like the angels were sitting around going, okay, so what are we going to say about Jesus? Oh yeah, Caesar's got some good stuff. Let's steal that. No. See, back then what you did is you had pantheons of gods. You had many different deities. And if a new one came along, you just added them to the ones you'd already worshipped. It was no problem. And I firmly believe that if Jesus was called one thing and Caesar was called a different thing. All everyone would have wanted to do is say, okay, great, here's just another one we add in. But because 
One is called Lord and the other is called Lord. One is called Savior and the other is called Savior. One brings peace and the other brings peace. One announces good news and the other announces good news because the exact same phrases are used. Instead of adding Jesus to whatever existing group of gods you already worship, now you have to pick. Now you have to choose. I mean, I I think for some... You would have heard this talk of Savior and Lord and peace and good news. You would have heard this and said, no, 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 we've already got that. In Rome, there sits a Savior who is Lord, who brought peace and announces good news. Why is the Christmas message couched in language so similar? It's certainly not because that's the only language they could have used, no. But it's because to a people who would have been tempted to think Caesar runs their political life and Jesus runs their spiritual life, the exact same phrases are used. So now they have to pick. That this Jesus comes. I mean, think about the implications of this. I mean, this is crazy. Caesar Augustus is the best that humans can ever do. He's the best that empires can ever produce. And you're telling me that a teenage virgin in a backwater province in a remote part of the empire is giving birth to a son under such scandalous circumstances that it's in a feeding trough and that that is the greatest threat to Rome. I mean, no one would have believed you. They would have just laughed. I mean, there's no way. And we just read this and we sing our cute little songs and we love our little baby Jesus and his nativity scene. I mean, don't you get it? This was revolutionary. It's the reason why Mary, after she hears the news, she doesn't sing about going to heaven someday. She sings about rulers being toppled. They understood what this was and what this meant. Go if you would to the book of Daniel. The awesome, totally understandable book of Daniel. (laughs) Now this, stick with me for five on this one. This is, this is a little thick. There was a very common Greek myth that said that the earth would be ruled by five great empires, starting with the Babylonians. And that the fifth and final empire would be the crowning empire of human civilization and would last forever. This was a very common myth that the Romans co-opted and said, oh, fifth empire? Great. When you count from the Babylonians, that's four. Fifth is us. So in a lot of their poetry, if you read Virgil or the Aeneid, you have have a lot of this this empire imagery. Four great empires, and then a fifth one would come, and that would be the inauguration of like the culmination of human history. Now, hundreds of years before this, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And in the dream, he envisions a statue, and that statue has four different sections made out of four different building materials. And each of those sections represents a great kingdom. So four kingdoms are represented by the statue. Notice Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 
This is Daniel speaking to the king, telling the king what his dream was. Your majesty looked, verse 31, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer, as we all know what that's like. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And then what Daniel does is he takes some time with the king and says, okay, so, so the first part of the statue was this kingdom, and he doesn't give the name, but historians generally associate them with Babylon going forward. And, and Daniel goes, okay, so this kingdom was this, and this part of the statue was this kingdom. And then notice what he says in verse 44. He mentions four great kingdoms, and notice who he suggests the fifth one belongs to. In the time of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a what? So if you're keeping score, this would be the fifth one. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, and a rock that smashes the other kingdom. So, while the Jews are in exile, the king of Babylon gets a dream that says there are four great kingdoms to come. Each more terrifying than the last. But then there's a fifth kingdom. And this kingdom's not like any others. In Daniel 7, there's a different dream where four beasts come out of the sea and they represent four kingdoms. And then someone like a son of man shows up and is given dominion over them. In this dream, four kingdoms are symbolized as a great statue and there's a rock hewn out of the mountainside by a hand that is not human and thrown into it and the human kingdoms are smashed. Do you think the Jews held on to that promise? Oh my goodness, yes. They were oppressed by the four kingdoms and they continually held forth the promise that God would establish a kingdom on the earth at which God himself would be their king again. Now who would have thought Hundreds of years later, that rock hewn out of a mountain by the hand of God took the form of an infant in a manger. Who would have thought that the way God was going to destroy the kingdoms of the earth was going to be being born to a virgin, lying in a manger, living 30 years in obscurity, having a three-year public ministry no more than 30 miles from his hometown, that he was going to gather around himself a group of ordinary, unschooled individuals, work some signs and wonders, but whenever those people actually got close to understanding who he was, he'd tell them to be quiet and not tell anybody. Until ultimately, at the end of the three years, the religious leadership was so sick of him, they recommended him for the death sentence. The Roman government capitulated, and he was put to death by the mightiest empire that had ever been seen. Who would have thought that that 
torture and humiliation execution was the rock that Almighty God was going to use to tear down the empire doing the executing. Jesus himself, as he stands before the representative of Rome, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, Pilate says, don't you know I have the power to crucify you or let you go? And Jesus, in the most revolutionary statement ever, said, you have no power except from what my Father gives you. And nobody takes my life. I give it. What are we doing when we sing our little silent night, oh, little town of Bethlehem songs? What exactly are we doing? You see, what we're celebrating is that there was indeed an end to the four great kingdoms. And indeed, there was a fifth kingdom established when Jesus marches around saying, repent, for the kingdom of the Father of the heavens is now in your midst. And indeed, 2,000 years later, nobody is singing about Caesar Augustus. Nobody is worshiping Herod, king of the Jews. But we join with millions and millions and millions of other people proclaiming an infant in a manger in the most obscure way possible. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. We celebrate the fact that Jesus of Nazareth... Oh, what? That Jesus of Nazareth is the rock whom is taking over the whole earth. That He is the one true Lord, the one true Savior, the only bringer of peace. And His peace is a different peace. Do you see, what Luke was setting up is the fact that there's another king. And His kingdom is totally different than Caesar's kingdom. Caesar's peace comes at the point of a sword. Jesus' peace comes on the receiving end of one. Pilate's peace comes from military might. Jesus' peace comes from a towel and a basin. Caesar's peace comes from inflicting suffering. Jesus' peace comes when you forgive those who are causing you to suffer. Caesar's peace is built on the strength of shields and swords. Jesus' peace is built on a crown of thorns and an empty tomb. Which one is still around? Which one do we sing about? See, when we say these cute little words and wear our cute little Christmas sweaters, we're actually saying something very defiant and celebrating something very subversive. Because to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that there is no other. To say that Jesus is Savior is to say that there is no other. To say that Jesus brought peace is to say that every other peace is an imitation. And to say that Jesus brings good news is to say that every other good news is but a faint echo. We still have Caesars today, don't we? Of course we do. We have political Caesars sitting all around the world and enthroned in dictatorships. We've got economic Caesars. How many of us are driven by the almighty dollar? Myself, I'm my own Caesar. Right? I like to 
have things my way and my time, what I want when I want it. And so who needs to be dethroned for most of us? Us. To say that Jesus is Lord means I'm not. To say that Jesus is Savior means I don't, can't and cannot save myself. To say that Jesus brings peace means that I'm not going to find it on the back of a Hallmark card or an acute after-school special. To say that it is good news means that my life be oriented around exclusively the announcement Jesus is Messiah King. See, Jesus has always been a threat to the established order of things. That's why he was put to death. He wasn't put to death because he was just offering pithy statements about what happens someday when you died. Hallelujah, he takes care of what happens when we die. But he also has something something to say about what we do while we live. And that the early church knew full well baptism was civil disobedience. Because you were saying that there's another king and another Lord and another kingdom. And the thing that we must, 20 centuries later, remember is the shape that kingdom takes. Peace does not come through strength of arms and economic prowess. Peace comes when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, through the hearts and the lives of His people. So what is it that we do when we sing our songs? We declare that every other Lord is a pretender that every other savior is false, and that every other gospel is insufficient. What we're saying is that is the most ridiculous thing imaginable. That because a 13-year-old Jewish virgin gave birth 2,000 years ago in a backwater part of the Roman Empire, we kneel today to that king. I don't ever want that to get old. Do you? I don't ever want that to lose the mystery and the awe and wonder it should pull out of us. I don't ever want to remember, I don't, excuse me, I don't ever want to forget the insane juxtaposition of Caesar in his palace and Jesus in his trough. And I don't want to ever forget that to follow Jesus means that you follow the most radical and subversive man to ever walk the face of this planet. And that he was the rock that destroyed the kingdoms and he did it by suffering for them. Who would have imagined that? Who would have imagined that? No eye could ever have seen nor no mind have ever conceived what God had in mind when he sent his Messiah to us. So would you close your eyes for a moment and we pray, Lord Jesus, May we be mindful of what it is to call you Lord and Savior. May we be mindful of what needs dethroned in us. Lord, this just all causes me to so marvel at what it is we celebrate this time of year. And Lord, it reminds me of what your great love drove you to do in response to our brokenness and sin. 
and that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, suffering every bit of human limitation and trial, but yet was without sin, so that you and I, as misfits, outcasts, sinners, rebels, can join this movement that will never end, and this kingdom that will stand forever. And so, Lord, we give you praise and glory and honor and all the children of God said.